the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning. Um, Can I just say, I've always wanted to dance with a head mic on, so I'm actually really grateful that I got to do the actions this morning, so thank you, Jolly. Um, I also want to apologise for my voice. I went to see the Jonas Brothers on Friday night, and Exeter played... um, Plymouth yesterday, so my voice has had a bit of a taking to. Um, so hopefully you can still hear me and understand me, but I'm sorry I'm a little bit croaky. Uh, my name's Gemma. Um, as it's been said, I'm a member here at Belmont, and it is my absolute pleasure to be opening, ooh, opening up God's uh, word with you this morning. Now, last week and the week before last, we took a little detour towards the end of the book of John to think about the events of Easter, didn't we? And we reflected on what John had to say about Jesus' death and his rising again. This week, though, we're back in the flow, still at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and looking, there we go, at John chapter 9, and a miracle or sign, as John prefers to call them, that Jesus performs that causes quite a stir within the community. Now, I want to tell you a story about me when I was 17. When I was 17, I was at a a worship event that was hosted by my church, and um, someone stood in front of my left eye. And as someone stood in front of my left eye, all the words on the screen went really blurry. And um, I was really confused by, I'm going to stop moving. I was really confused by what had happened. And so um, I spent the whole concert kind of doing this. trying to work out what was going on. And so I went to the opticians, and um, I found out that what I needed was glasses. See, my left eye had been overcompensating for my right, and I hadn't realised that my eyesight, which I thought was all right, actually had been compromised. It wasn't working as well as it should be. And I tell you that this morning because uh, today we're going to look at some people who, like me, didn't realise their sight was compromised. See, this morning is like a culmination, the bringing together of everything that we've looked at so far. This passage echoes elements of of John 4 and John 5, but it also is this continuation on of John 7 and John 8. And if you can cast your mind back over the last few months of the things that we've, we've kind of thought about and explored, you'll see that this story brings it all into a really sharp focus. And I think we see a practical working out of what John has been going on about this whole time. And so in a minute, I'm going to get Sam to come up and read for us John 9, 1 to 15, which gives us a bit of context to what we're going to be thinking about um, this morning. And you might appreciate having a Bible open or on, and by might appreciate, really, really value, okay? Really, really value having a Bible open or on. There's Bibles at the back if you want to grab one. Um, Because what I'm going to get you to do while Sam thinks is this. Now, if you're a young person in this room and you've been in a youth work session with me, you'll know this phrase. We do things called shockers and blockers. These are things that surprise us, things that we don't understand when we read a passage. And as Sam reads um, to you, I want you to be thinking of these questions on the screen. Because what's going to happen when Sam finishes reading is you're going to turn to the people around you and you're going to share those things. What stands out to you? What surprises you? What don't you understand? What sounds familiar? Are there any clues to what might happen in the rest of our passage? That's what I want us to do this morning. So um, Sam, if you'd like to come up and read for us, and, and you guys remember that you're not just listening to listen, you're listening to think, and then we're going to chat about those things afterwards. Thanks, Sam. John 9, verses 1 to 15. Jesus heals a man born blind. 
As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Thank you, Sam. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of moments with the person next to you. Shockers and blockers, what stands out to you? What surprises you? What don't you understand? What sounds familiar? Are there any clues about what might happen in our passage? If you're watching from home, pop them in the chat box. Off you go. Okay, brilliant. Fab. Um, I'm going to pray really quickly, and then we're going to crack on with what um, you kind of thought about. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for time uh, spent together in your word. As we explore this chapter now, Lord, we just pray that through your spirit, you nudge and encourage us, challenge and embolden us so that we can grow to be more faithful followers of you. Amen. Now, I don't know what came out of those conversations, and you might not be surprised to hear. I don't have the time to ask each and every one of you. But if what comes out in those conversations is not addressed in our time together this morning, feel free to come and grab me um, after the service to come and chat to me. Or you might want to chat to someone during tea and coffee or maybe in your house groups this week as you look at this passage. One of the things that I imagine, though, came up in your discussions was this whole idea of sin and disability being linked. Now, this was a common uh, theological position of the day, a common understanding of how God worked. Disabilities were thought to be evidence of yours or, or relative sin, and blindness in particular, well, that was linked with the sin of idolatry. And so the disciples, upon seeing a blind man, ask what is a pretty standard theological question to their teacher. What happened so that this man was blind? Was he, like, why was he born blind? Who sinned, his man or his parents? Jesus' response, though, is anything but standard. Neither, he says, suggesting that these are far more complicated than maybe we first realize. The author and commentator Tom Wright suggests that deep down, despite the world that we live in, many of us still have this disciple-like understanding of justice. That good things result in good things, and bad things result in bad things. 
That's why we use the language we do when we talk about suffering. We often talk about people not deserving things happening to them, don't we? I do it, and I know I'm not the only one. And yet Jesus is reminding us here that actually, that's not the case. There we go. There we go. It's not the case. It's not how things work. In this passage, Jesus tells the disciples that those with disabilities, those who were forced to the the outskirts of society, made to feel shame and abandoned and rejected just for existing in this culture, have nothing to feel shamed about. Absolutely nothing. I imagine the specifics of Jesus' response kind of came up too. Um, I'll be honest, this line caused me a bit of a shockage and blockage this week. The, the, the truth is, having read a lot of commentaries on this bit, um, I'm still not necessarily that much the wiser about what Jesus is saying. But I'm going to share with you some of what um, I've read. The general consensus seems to be that although sound theology cannot uh, doubt God's sovereignty, God's right to uh, like just make someone blind to prove a point one day, The reality is that doesn't really sound like the God we know and and read about in the rest of Scripture. Therefore, Jesus must be saying something more nuanced, more complex than appears on the surface. For the likes of um, Gary Bird, Caroline Lewis uh, and Edward Klink and Marianne Thompson, the man's blindness gives Jesus an opportunity to display the works of God through him. That is to say that... um, the, the man's blindness provides an opportunity to, to redeem, to restore, and to renew. And all those things together are the work of God in our lives. Those, um, uh, this anonymous blind man becomes the, the primary witness and example um, to what God is here to do in Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? And so actually, if this man had not been born blind from birth this would not have been able to happen. It's not then that God decides this man should be blind um, just to kind of flex, show off about what he can do, but rather this man's blindness creates the opportunity to display not only the power and authority of God through Jesus Christ, but also demonstrate practically what Jesus had been teaching about over the course of the festival. Now, it's a bit gross, this bit, isn't it? Um, You might have noticed the spit in our passage this morning. I tried to get a picture of spit and decided it wasn't appropriate for a Sunday morning. Um, In ancient times, spit was thought to cure illnesses and treat diseases. Now, the Jewish authorities banned the practice because it was more commonly used with, like, magical practices that weren't really of God. But Jesus chooses to use this method anyway, and I wonder whether he's hinting at the fact that his redeeming work might even help non-Jewish people bring glory to God. might be a bit of a stretch, but I wonder. There's a few other things I want to notice uh, before we kind of move further. Jesus declares once again, doesn't he, that I am the light of the world. Now, this is a declaration that Jesus makes first in John chapter 12. And when Johnny explored this for us a few weeks ago, he highlighted, didn't he, all the things that light does. Light gives life, it reveals, it guides, and it banishes fear. As we see this played out practically um, in the passage uh, as we go forward, I want you to remember those things. 
The pool of Siloam, Siloam, I know you say it, but that's the place of the scent, yeah? And that pool is where they would draw the water from for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so this whole thing links us back to the events of chapter 7 that Paul took us through and the things we learnt there about proper judgment and the heart behind the law and who Jesus is. We also see, um, there you go, we also see Jesus not being present um, at the fulfillment of this miracle, like we do at the end of John chapter 4. See, just like the father who was desperate for his child to be healed, wasn't he? This man too has to go in obedience, only having Jesus' word to, to go off, to trust that the healing would take place. The last thing Um, I want us to talk about um, is this. I hope you notice this. I hope alarm bells went off in your brain when you saw this word. This all happens on the Sabbath. All happens on the Sabbath. We should be expecting then disruption and disapproval. We should be expecting debate to take place. We should be sat here waiting for things to get aggy, yeah? Waiting for things to kick off. Because the last time Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that's what happened, didn't it? That's what we saw happen in chapter 5. And so that's a little bit of context for what we're looking at this morning. But, and, and, and I've said before that, that these signs, that these wonders in John, that they're there to point us towards the identity of Jesus Christ. And it's that that is missed in our passage today. See, What's ironic, what's funny about this story in particular is the fact that the only one who uh, sees what is happening, sees what's going on, sees Jesus for, for who he truly is, is the man who couldn't see it all. As Jesus will explain right at the end of our encounter this morning, this man may have been born physically blind, but spiritually he could see. And it's that spiritual sight that saves him. And it's the lack of that spiritual sight that will condemn everyone else in our passage. Now, for many who um, write on this passage, this blind man is the perfect example of what a disciple, a follower of Jesus looks like, okay? In contrast with the man in John 5, who is also healed by Jesus on the Sabbath, but doesn't seem willing to kind of face the consequences of that, This man is healed by Jesus. He stands by Jesus. He's persecuted because of Jesus. He believes in Jesus, still choosing to after all of that, and becomes a disciple of Jesus too. And as such, it is really easy to go, well, that's me in this passage. I'm the one that gets everything right. But actually, I think more often than not, we're the other actors in this. We're the man's neighbors. We're the man's parents Dare I say it, we're even the Pharisees in this story. Our eyesight, rather than being restored by Jesus, is often actually compromised by the world we live in. We let attitudes and emotions get in the way of us seeing Jesus for all that he has declared himself to be, all that we've looked at in the last eight chapters of John. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We're going to look at, hopefully... The neighbours who allow scepticism to compromise their vision. We're going to look at the parents who allow fear to compromise their vision. And we're also going to look at the Pharisees who allow arrogance to compromise theirs. Before we do that, though, I just want to make one more quick comment. 
as we will come to see in this chapter, seeing is more than just like witnessing something with your eyes. For John, seeing Jesus is about believing and recognizing who Jesus is and responding to that accordingly and appropriately. And that's what I want us to hold on to as we think about sight this morning. And so the man's neighbors, they see this miracle take place. That's what Sam read for us earlier. And it's really clear to them that something has changed. Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. They're unsure, aren't they? So the man gives them an account of what went down. But even after that, even after the man has explained what has happened, they still feel like they need answers. That's why they take him, they lead him, they drag him before the Pharisees. They want more of an explanation. They want an answer that is tangible to them. They can't just believe what this man has said. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong, okay, with seeking advice and guidance of those wiser than ourselves when we are faced with difficult or confusing things. I literally do it all of the time. Nothing wrong with it. But I'm not sure that's entirely what is going on here. It's not that they're simply uncertain about what's happened, but they just don't believe. The man has told them that the man called Jesus has healed him, but without Jesus there to kind of back him up, the people are just skeptical. And it's that skepticism that that stops them from seeing what has truly and really happened. This man, okay, has been blind from birth, forced to the outskirts of his community and made to beg just to survive. And now, through what can only be a miracle, uh, this man can see. And in that moment, his life has changed entirely. It is incredible and amazing and something that deserves to be celebrated and enjoyed just like that first sign at the wedding in Cana. And yet, they can't see that. They can't see it, and they can't see it because they're too preoccupied. They're too preoccupied by all the reasons why that can't be the case. And there's no judgment, okay? I'm not judging these people. I do that sort of thing all the time. When I see a change or a transformation that just seems a bit too good to be true, a bit too great, something I can't really understand, I doubt as well. These neighbors are are blinded to the point where they can't even celebrate and rejoice with the man for all that it means for him. See, just like the crowd that surrounded Jesus in John chapter 4, these people also need to see signs and wonders in order to believe. And all that these people have seen is the outcome. Yeah, they haven't seen it happen. These people seem to think that in order to truly believe, they must see. But I think this chapter shows us that in order to truly see, we must believe. And that's really important. Tom Wright writes that things of the new creation, that the post-Jesus life can seem puzzling and not make immediate sense. But that doesn't mean they're not true. We can't let the limits of our own understanding limit the one who is beyond our understanding. So far in John, Jesus has turned water into wine, okay? He has uh, healed the official's child. He has uh, calmed the raging sea and healed the paralyzed man, yeah? In our chapter today, he heals a man born blind. In a couple of chapters' time, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Spoilers, sorry. Um, And then, right at the end, he's going to rise from the dead himself, 
This is Jesus, a man that does immeasurably more than we can ever expect or imagine. And we have to watch our skepticism, yeah? We have to watch our skepticism with this man. Because as unconscious as it might be, it blinds us from the restoring and renewing and redeeming work that God does and is doing in all that choose to follow him. I want us to move now to look at the man's parents. Now, you haven't heard this story. I'm going to read it for you in a minute. But they're brought into our passage by the Pharisees, who, after questioning the man, feel like they need a bit more evidence. I'm going to read from verse 18. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened our eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Robert Mounts writes that the Pharisees themselves were, were struggling to find a rational explanation of what happened to be, uh, appeared to be this miracle. And so they, they bring in the man's parents to confirm two things. The first is whether he's born blind. The second is what kind of makes him not blind. Now, the parents are happy to testify to the first. They know their son. They've seen their son. They know that he was blind. The second charge, though, they're not as happy to come forward on, are they? They aren't willing to testify to something they have not seen. They aren't willing to believe their son's story. They aren't able to recognize what has happened in his life. And why? Well, John tells us it's because they're scared. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's verse 22 again. Now, this wasn't just like barring someone from church from like someone stood on the door saying, you can't come in today. Being put out of the synagogue was being cast out of the entire community. It's complete um, social isolation. I grew up watching a lot of teen movies, uh, preferably American ones, about popular kids and outcasts. That's the plot line to all of them, if you're interested. Um, and this is very much like that, Right. The Pharisees are the, are the top of the social chain. If you're someone who likes mean girls, they're the plastics, yeah? Uh, and, and they stop anyone getting anywhere near uh, the top. They hold the social power. They decide who is in and who is out. And as Jesus threatens that power, anyone who follows him is definitely out. And the parents decide that they can't risk that. They cannot risk that, even for their own son. Remember what Johnny said a few weeks ago about how light casts out fear? Well, because the parents can't see, they don't have that light. So unlike their son, who is willing to stand up and call out the Pharisees, the parents cower before them, throwing their son under the bus in the process. This fear stops them from truly seeing what has happened to their son. Their fear blinds them. And the truth is, fear can blind us too. There are lots of reasons why following Jesus is scary. In many places in the world today, persecution and threats that come with that decision are just as real today as they were for the early church in the first and second century. 
Increasingly in our culture, there are lots of reasons why standing up for the truth of Jesus, of who he is and what he does is scary too. Just like the parents in the story, we can fear the social isolation that comes from publicly aligning ourselves with Jesus, whatever that might look like in our own personal lives. I know people who don't use the word Christian to describe themselves because they're worried about the assumptions that people might make about them, the way people might treat them if they use that label to describe themselves. It's really sad, isn't it? But that fear, it stops us. And this story is clear that actually this isn't the way we should be living our lives. We must not allow that fear to stop us from seeing Jesus. We cannot allow it to to get in the way of us believing, recognizing, and responding to Jesus accordingly. The fear of being rejected by their community led them to do the very same thing to their son and Jesus costing them an awful lot more, actually, than just social isolation in the big picture of things. We need to be really careful, really careful that we don't do that, too. Finally, then, we're going to move on to the Pharisees in our story, whose arrogance stops them from seeing. Now, the issues the Pharisees have is that that opening the eyes of the man born blind is something that only God could do, or only someone sent by God could do. But the fact that it's been done on the Sabbath, at least in their eyes, is not something someone sent by God would do because that's sinning. And so after the parents uh, rock up and give their testimony and are of no real use anymore, they leave. And the Pharisees return to questioning the man themselves. I'm going to read from verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciples, we're disciples of Moses. We know God through spoke through Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. The justification for the Pharisees calling Jesus a sinner comes from the fact that that making the mud for the man's eyes was deemed as work, as it required kneading. Now, kneading was one of the 39 classes uh, of work forbidden on the Sabbath, according to the Mishnah, the spoken law of the day designed, actually, to help prevent the breaking of the actual law. That's the role of the Mishnah in their society. Now, you may remember that there are some things you can do on the Sabbath. You can break the Sabbath for circumcision, uh, because you need to follow the law of Moses. And you can also break the Sabbath when it comes to saving a person's life. Now, we know that Jesus opens the eyes of this man, But in doing so, he brings light into his existence for the first time. And what does light do? 
Well, light brings life. What the Pharisees can't see, because their sight is compromised by their arrogance, is the fact that what Jesus has done has saved this person's life. Spiritually speaking, yeah? He's not broken the Sabbath. He's done exactly what you're allowed to do on the Sabbath. The Pharisees ask the man the same questions they asked him before. And he's at pains to point out, isn't he, that nothing has changed. His experience hasn't changed. I've told you already and you do not listen. I have shown you, yeah? But you do not see. The Pharisees, they think they know everything there is to know about being a follower of Jesus. They are disciples of Moses. It doesn't get any greater than that. But this knowledge is giving them an arrogance, a false belief that actually they know better than anyone else. And that what they understand to be true and right, well, that is what is true and right. They think they see it all. But their eyesight is compromised. And that's evidenced in verse 34. Oh, sorry. There we go. They don't see what we see, do they? Right at the beginning in verse 3. Their comments reflect, they echo those made by the disciples back in verse 2. See, as the reader, even the disciples, even the man born blind, we know, we have seen, that this man's blindness has nothing to do with sin. Yet the Pharisees didn't see that. They don't see that. They can't see that. When I was doing my uh, degree, I was told by a friend to regularly read Psalm 8 to ground me. That's what she said. You're going to need grounding, Gemma. Now, my friend had done a theology degree before, and she told me that if I wasn't careful, I would become arrogant. She knows me well. I would assume that that I knew it all, yeah, Uh, because I'd read a few books, and I would stop listening to others and eventually stop listening to God because there would be nothing more he could teach me, nothing more he could show me, nothing more he could reveal to me because I... They would know it all. And I'm going to be honest with you, I took her up on that advice, and I had to do it a few times because I found myself sat in sermons, and no disrespect to anyone here, but I did. I found myself sat in sermons like, I know this already. I know this already. I don't need to listen. Arrogance narrows our perspective. It, It ruins our eyesight. And it's really easy to fall into regardless of where we are in our faith, regardless. As we come to a close, um, I want us to think about Jesus' final words in this chapter. See, throughout everything that we've just looked at now, Jesus is off camera, yeah? During this whole time, Jesus is nowhere to be seen. But right at the end, Jesus returns, and he reveals his true identity to the man who then believes and responds accordingly, worshipping Jesus at his feet. Jesus then explains to uh, the the crowd around him that, that he has come into this world so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, some of the Pharisees, upon hearing this, ask this question, what? Are we blind too? And that's my question to you guys this morning. How's your eyesight? Can you see? Or does skepticism 
fear, arrogance, compromise your sight. And if it does, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to continue to live with compromised sight, like the neighbors, like the parents, like the Pharisees? Or are you going to be like the man in our story? Are you going to allow Jesus the time, the space, and the opportunity to start sorting that out for you? I'm going to pray for us, and then Andrew's going to come and lead us in communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words, and we thank you for for all that it reveals to us. We thank you for the story of this blind man, for the fact that you help him to see really and truly for the first time. Lord, this morning, if if we're sat here with slightly compromised eyesight, we pray that you'll you'll give us the impetus to to sort that out. Lord, help us to see where, where our eyesight may be compromised by things like fear, by things like skepticism, by things like uh, arrogance. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it gives us space and time uh, to, to work with you in these things. And so we pray that if that's what we need to do, you will remind us to do it. Amen. Thank you.